Happy Sabbath. What Sabbath is this? Education Sabbath? Oh, sorry, I got confused. I thought it was Thanksgiving Sabbath. So I'm going to give thanks to several groups of people. The first one is to our students. I want to thank you students for being our students. The reason Village exists is for you because God loves you each individually, specially and uniquely and he has called our school to invite you into his kingdom to train you up and to teach you about Jesus. And we are privileged to do that. So I wanna thank you for being our students. I wanna thank the parents because we know what a sacrifice and what dedication and commitment it takes to send your students to our school and to have children in Christian education. So we thank you for entrusting us with your children with their education. We are with them about seven hours a day, Monday through Thursday, and then a half a day on Friday, and we realize what an incredible trust that is, and we take that responsibility very seriously. And we thank you for giving us, your children, during that time of day to educate them. I wanna also thank the staff. Our staff is very dedicated and committed, and they're wanting to share Jesus with your children every day that they are in the classroom with them. And we want to thank them for their hard work. The pastoral staff as well, I know, extends that, that thanks. And I want to thank them because they are part of that group of people that come in and support and assist us with teaching the young people. And so we're thankful for the pastoral staff. We're thankful for the extended staff and for the janitorial staff and all those who contribute and volunteer, the kitchen staff, those who contribute and volunteer and, and work in our school to, to lead people, the young people to Christ. So we wanna thank you all because we wouldn't be here on this day if it wasn't for all of you. The beauty and majesty and simplicity of God's word that our village first grade students have just shared from the book of Genesis reminds us that not only did God create the universe and everything in it, but of a critical importance for us living today at the end of time and just before the return of Jesus, it explains how he created the universe. So before I start the message really today, I want to make reconciliation <laughs> because it appears that when I was talking about the wonderful uh, recital of the, the scripture by first grade last, um, last service, I forgot to mention second grade and I apologize for that because it was first and second grade as everyone saw in the second service. So first and second grade were the ones that were sh sharing that beautiful word. Uh, before we begin opening up God's word, let's bow our heads for prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we wanna thank you so much that you have called us, invited us into your house today to worship you and praise you and learn about the power of your word. We've already seen that demonstrated in the lives of our young people through the words, through the songs, through the scripture, through the prayers. And we just wanna pray that the power of your word will inhabit our lives, our hearts, our minds, and that we can go forth with that power to proclaim the gospel and the three angels' message so that we can be ready for your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So as I was saying at the beginning, it not only explains that God created the universe, but it explains how he created the universe. So, please turn with me to Psalms 33, verse 6. Psalms 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. It was this creative, coalescent, vivifying power of the living God, the word of God, that brought into existence everything in this world. Everything that we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch and a myriad of things that exist beyond the realm of our senses, our physical senses. We are still, we still know about them in the universe. And of course, I realize that in the case of humanity, the Lord God formed him out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. And that he took the rib out of Adam to form Eve. But even in those intimate, hands-on, creative moments, even those moments were predicated on the powerful, life-giving word of God. Please turn to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And you heard these words done wonderfully by our first and second grade, but I'd like to read them in your hearing again. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Um, and this really came to my mind one day when I was thinking about this. The image of God is not man or woman. The image of God is man and woman. Male and female, in his own image, God created he them. From the time God chose to make humans, male and female, in his own image, to the blessing and injunction that he speaks to them in preparing them for the beautiful and productive lives as co-workers with Christ in God's perfect creation, God's word plays a central and essential part. He gave them dominion over the earth and over the fish and the sea. And then God said, I have given you every herb that yields seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed and for you it shall be food. In all this, God's word played an essential role. The word of God was the power behind not only the creation of the world, but the sustenance of the, our world as well. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And I like this version. That's why I'm showing it to you on the screen. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. By his powerful word. God demonstrates the power of his word through his son. And this weekend, much of the Christian world is celebrating, praise God, the life, the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we can be thankful too for that resurrection power. But I want to submit to you that, again, it is God's word that the Son of God fully represented to us. He represents God and keeps the entire universe running by the power of his word. I love the way John describes it in John 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. I'm sorry, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. We see this creative sustaining power again in Acts chapter 14, 15 through 17. You can see it in Acts chapter 14, 15 through 17. Paul, when speaking to the crowd at Lystra who were trying to worship him, said, friends, why are you doing this? We are bringing you the good news. And we call the good news what? The gospel. The gospel. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the sea and everything in them. In the past... He let the nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without a testimony. He has not left himself without a word. Amen? He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So not only has God given us his word, which speaks about him and demonstrates who he is and reveals who he is and his character and his plan of salvation for our lives, but then he gives us the things we need in our life. He gives us the food. He sends the rain. He sends the sunshine. And he could just do that, right? He could have just said, well, I'm providing for all your needs. I'm providing for all your needs. But he goes beyond that, right? He says, I give you joy for your hearts. I fill your hearts with joy. So he's a God that goes beyond our physical needs. It is the same creative, life-giving, life-sustaining word of God that he has given to us to bless us, to protect us, to provide for all that we need. And it is that word that is currently under withering attack in our world today. Our enemy Satan is working in a comprehensive and systematic way to subvert God's word all around us and to divert our attention from God's word towards things that have no power to give life or sustain us and certainly no power to save us from our sin. One of the ways 
that the enemy has been doing this, and it, un, unfortunately and sadly, has been very successful in subverting God's word is by creating a system of so-called science that directly undermines and diverts people's faith from God's word and thereby draws them away from the genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. I'm speaking about the teaching of evolution. I want to share with you some data that on the one hand is indicative of the effectiveness of Satan's efforts to deceive and distract people and turn them away from faith in God, but at the same time reveals some positive principles and practices that fortify God's people against the attacks of the enemy. So these, so you know, these slides that I'm showing, and I'm not going to get into great deal about them, but they show a trend. And they're from Pew Research and a Gallup poll as well. And they show that the percentages of people in the U.S. anyways has been going that believe in the existence of mankind, human beings, men and women, in the present form as we are today is going steadily down. So you can see that in the first slide where it talks about U.S. adults who believe in the being present form since the beginning and evolved over time. So right now, according to this one poll, it's about 31% that believe in creationism and 65% that believe in evolution, which to me is in one way encouraging because if you would have asked me, I would have thought those numbers were much, much greater in terms of evolution. Because everywhere you turn, it seems like there's evolution in the media, evolution in the curriculums in school, evolution when you go to the, never, the national parks. You can't go to a national parks without being fed a steady diet of millions of years and uniformitarianism, which is the belief that, well, it just all occurred naturally without God I intervening. Uh, the next one I want to show you is, if you go down to the ages, you see there a disturbing trend. And the disturbing trend is this. If you will look to 65 and older, that's the greater number of those who believe in creation. And as you go to each successive generation, younger and younger, what happens to that number? It gets, the, the number that believes in evolution goes up, and the number that believe, believes in creation goes down. And I think in this other graph you, hear, you see here uh, with the different lines, and I'll go over them very quickly, basically what they say is on the top line, it's people who believe in creation, that we were created in our present form, that we didn't evolve over time from, from some uh, lower life form into what we are presently now. And that's the gray line. Now the green line, to me in some way, is maybe even more insidious because this teaching is that, yeah, evolution occurred, but God was involved. And I want you to think about that for a second. If we believe that evolution is the way we were created, but God did it, what kind of God are we believing in? What kind of God would create a survival of the fittest where the strong survive and the weak die off. Not the kind of God I want to worship. 
So that's what you see here. You see that, those two lines. And then on the bottom, you see people who believe that man developed, but God had no part. So again, what's disturbing about this is what, what do you see happening? The numbers at the top are doing what? Generally, generally they're going down. The numbers on the bottom are going up. So that's mostly the bad news. Um, but I want to share this, this slide with you. Uh, and, and you can read it, but I'm going to summarize it for you. Because this was not from a Pew Research or Gallup poll. It was, a, it was written by um, researchers. And the title is, Accepting Evolution Means You Can't Believe in God. Atheistic Perceptions of Evolution Among College Biology Students. And so they did this study, and this is some of their conclusions. It's part of their conclusions. In addition to anti-evolution cultural norms, so you can see uh, creationists are being painted into this kind of negative light. At least that's how I read it. Um, and it basically says that Christians uh, who hold a literal interpretation of the Bible are tend to reject evolution. Praise God. Amen? And that is one of the good news points I want to bring out. If you have a literal interpretation of the Bible, it fortifies you against the attacks of the enemy. And this is in direct conflict to the tenet, the evolution that all life shares a common ancestor. Thus, literal interpretations of the Bible have led some Christians to adapt anti-evolution beliefs. Okay, this, this real quickly is just to show some of the good news. Um, and again, I'm not trying to tout to our spiritual horn here and say that we're better than anyone. What I am trying to point out is that in God's word and through God's people, there is protection from the attacks on God's word itself. If you see church attendance, so I'm, I'm working with the pastors here, <laughs> and I'm sure they'll appreciate this. And it's not that it's the only thing you go to church for, but if you notice, those who had regular church attendance, 68% of them were more likely to believe that God created man in present form. Amen? So that's, that's good news. That means regular church attendance has some impact on that. You notice as, as you go less and less in church attendance, what happens to the number that believes in creation? It goes down. And, and it really isn't a surprise. I mean, when you're not in church, where in the general media stream, internet, uh, TV, radio, where do you hear about creationism? Christian radio, right? <laughs> not many other places. Not, not many. So when you're in church is when you're going to hear about it. The other thing I want to point out on this slide before I move on is in religion, notice in the United States, what's the greatest number of uh, types of religion, Christian denominations that believe in creation? And it's Protestant. And again, this is what I mean by not tooting our own spiritual horn, what I want to say about this is I believe that's because of the literal interpretation of the Bible and the authority and authenticity of the Bible that's being taught in our church. So even 
Though the numbers in this one battle where the enemy is attacking the faith of people throughout the world do not look that good. We can praise God that he has guaranteed us the victory through Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's why we can be happy that much of the Christian world is celebrating his resurrection. Yes, there are things we don't agree with in terms of doctrine and teaching, but we do believe that this was, uh, that Jesus did rise from the grave and that that power of the resurrection, I believe, is predicated on the word of God. In his word, Jesus has shown us that it is an important weapon in that warfare against the enemy. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. He, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and motives of the heart. And that's what I want to focus on right now. God's word goes directly to the heart of the matter, which for each one of us is what? It's our thoughts, our feelings, and our motivations. And this is what the enemy is afraid of and knows very well. And so that's where he attacks us. The enemy knows that's where the battle is won or lost. But of course, the good news is that God knows that as well. Amen? And that is why he's providing his word to protect us. That is why when God speaks, and we heard some of these verses before today, God speaks through his word in Psalms 119.11. One nineteen, verse 11. Thy word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. God puts his word in our hearts and our minds so they can come out into our life that we may not sin against him. And again, uh, if you have time, I would take the time to read Psalms 119. It is a treasure trove uh, in God's word. And Psalms 119 says, how can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. At first glance, obeying God's word may seem far easier said than done. I know that in my own life, I've wanted to obey God's word, as Paul says in Romans 7:19. for I know that it is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. I have found myself on more than one occasion struggling to obey God's will, even though that is what I want to do. Has anybody, am I the only one with that problem? <laughs> I hope I'm not. <laughs> but I don't think I am because it's a human condition. But the good news is that God has given us a way to overcome the enemy. He has not left us to wallow in discouragement and defeat. He has not only given us instructions on how to win the battle, but he has won the battle. Please turn to Matthew four, chapter 4. 
Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted, how long? Forty days and forty nights afterward he was hungry. So I was curious about this. Um, so I looked this up. How long can you survive without air? You know, minutes, right? Yeah, we can talk about breath hold divers and all that. <laughs> but most of us aren't going to survive more than ten minutes without air. What about water? How long without water? About a week, right? Maybe give or take. A lot of this depends upon the condition of the person who's undergoing this kind of severe stress. Um, and I read about this and they said, you can't, of course, it's not ethical or moral or legal to do tests and say, okay, we're going to subject people to starvation and see what happens. But unfortunately, in our human condition, people have uh, by themselves su suggest subjected themselves to hunger through hunger strikes or unfortunately there are people that have been subjected to it against their own will and so researchers have done studies on this and they found that about 30 to 60 days a human can go without food. So where's Jesus in there in this instance? He's right at the edge, right? He's right and maybe we didn't really get this. I, I, I don't really think I did. He's right I mean, he's just clinging to life, physically. So, let's see what happens. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Would you be hungry? So I read about this too, and it said, when you get to this condition, you start to have terrible, terrible physical, uh, all kinds of cramps and pain. It's just, it's not good. It's not good. And so he was more than just hungry. Now when the, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones be turned to bread. So let's notice a few things about this. Is bread a bad thing? <laughs> Especially after 40 days, it's a very good thing. But right from the beginning, we can see in the Satan's words that he's twisting things. Because how does he start off his question with that little two-word, if? What is he doing there? He's casting doubt on the divinity of Christ. He's saying, if you are the Son of God, then... So really, what is he attempt? It's, it's really, the bread is incidental to what Satan is trying to do here. What is he really tempting him to do? To show he's the son of God, right? He's really tempting him to use his power, his divine power, for his own benefit. Let's move on. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So how does Jesus answer Satan's temptations? With the word of God. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy verse chapter 8 very quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 8 
verse 3. And we'll see more of this technique of um, Satan later on of twisting God's word. But here you see the full context how, Satan, how, how Jesus uses God's word because he understands the original time when it was quoted in Deuteronomy. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And if you keep going down, you see your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell over the 40 years. You should know that your heart, in your heart that a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. Therefore, you shall what? Keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in your ways to fear him. So Jesus was sharing there the importance of his word and, and not only recognizing God's goodness to us, but then as a bulwark against Satan's temptations. Let's continue on in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And now he leaves a key part in the, out of this verse. In there, he, he doesn't quote the part where it says, in all your ways. In, in their hands they shall bear you, you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So Satan here does something kind of insidious. He quotes God's word and twists it and takes it out of context. But Jesus is not thrown off track. What does he say in response? Verse 7. Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You see, Satan is upping his game each time. At first, he just tempts Jesus in the flesh to do something against his physical body. But now, he's tempting him to do something that would use his power to exalt himself and to protect himself. Again, the devil took him up into an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things will I give you if you fall down and what? Worship me. Satan wanted to be worshiped. He wanted the privileges and the prerogatives of God without the character of God. And so here he's trying to get Jesus to worship him. So all his temptations were really to this end. And he said to him, all these things I shall give you and if you will fall down and worship me. So he's, he's not only twisting God's words, but he's a liar, right? Because was it is in his authority to give anything to Christ? And the answer is no, not as, as God in his divinity. So number, uh, chapter, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Do you see the power in God's word against Satan's temptations when we, like Christ, will 
use it in our own lives, we can see have that same power. I want to read you um, a statement from the Desire of Ages, page 117. If we for any reason have a more trying con conflict, sorry, conflict than Christ, then he would not be able to succor us. But our Savior took humanity with all its inabilities. He took the nature of man with the possibility of yielding to temptation. We have nothing to bear which he has not endured. Amen? Christ has endured not only what we have to endure, but much more. When I was in the service, and, and probably you've experienced this as well, there were leaders who led by basically saying, go do this, go do that. But they didn't do it themselves. They didn't get their hands dirty. But there were other leaders who were out in front. They were doing it. In fact, they were doing it many times beyond what we could do. So who do you think we had the respect for and wanted to follow? The ones, of course, that were doing it. Christ is just such a leader. We can trust him because he's been through it. He's done it. And we can know that he will protect us. So I want to share from my personal testimony as we close. And just to say that I stand before you today by the power of God's word. My mother, bless her heart, who turns 100 this year, uh, believed in the verse that said, train up a child in the way that he shall go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. So I think I'm getting there, so I think I'm experiencing that. Because every week I was in Sunday school and I was in church. And so by the time I was 13, I stood in the waters of Maynard's Pond with my sister-in-law, not a big group of friends or peers, just myself and my sister-in-law, and we gave our hearts to Jesus and accepted him as our Savior. And since that time, I've committed my life to Jesus, and what turned me towards him was as I was a young person learning that word, I saw in it the truth of the word. But I went to public school, so for a time, I was in that group of people, that, that larger group now, when I was there, it was much smaller, who had been led to believe evolution. And I'll tell you personally, it drew me away from God. Because I started to question. I said, well, wait a second. If God is God, and he created us, but, but no, evolution is truth, then how can that be? And it caused me to doubt. And it led me away from him for a while. But then, praise God, he didn't leave me be. Amen? So when I got out of the Marine Corps, I saw these posters with these beasts and things on them. Those of you who are older know what I'm talking about. It was called the Revelation Seminar. And I was drawn to it. And by the word of the Lord, I was convicted. I was convicted that the seventh day was the Sabbath. I was convicted that Jesus was coming again. I was convicted that God wants us to maintain our bodies as a holy temple for him. I was convicted of many different things. And God led me there how? By his word. By the power of his word. And so, um, 
On Jan in January 1993, Susan and I were baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I stand before you today a principle convicted of the need for us to take God's word and his book of nature and to bring them together in teaching our young people and leading them to Christ. It's the power of his word. I want to share one more text with you as we close. 1 Peter 1. First Peter 1, 20, we'll start at 22. First Peter 1, 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, and where do we find the truth? In his word, right? In his word. Through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So Peter's obviously saying, if you believe all this, then it'll have some effect in your life, right? Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of uncorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. There's been so much accusation that this is a dead, outdated, archaic book. And I want to tell you today that is a bold-faced lie. <laughs> it is the power of God to salvation. Because all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass, as the grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. This is the word I commend to you. This is the word that I pray each one of us will grow closer and closer to us so that it can, so we can grow in Christ and then share this good news with the world before his soon return. Our closing hymn is number one, Praise the Lord.